Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be taking a couple week break from Luke. We've been in Luke for some time, and we're going to be finishing that, not finishing out, but getting back to that in the new year, but talk about Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, a body you have prepared. Kevin Bodder in his blog, In the Nick of Time, writes of three different Christmases. You've heard me speak of them before. He uses dis- different terms to them. I refer to them as the secular, the sentimental, and the su- spiritual. He speaks of the commercial Christmas <clears throat> That's the day that was invented during the second half of the 19th century with the emergence of popular culture and exploitation by realtors. It's a day that actually plays upon covetousness. The commercial Christmas first transformed the giving of gifts into expectation of receiving gifts and then into the demanding of gifts. Remains our civilization's most important celebration of avarice, he writes, While no one can object to the giving of gifts, it is difficult to see how any Christian can enter into the spirit of Christmas commercial without defilement. Then there's the cultural Christmas or the sentimental Christmas. This is the second Christmas is the cultural holiday. It's the day of red and green, holly and ivy, eggnog and caroling, tinsel, trees and lights, such customs as the Yule logs and candles and sleigh bells and reindeers and Kris Kringle are all part of this holiday. Some of the traditions and culture of Christmas are ancient and maybe possibly pagan in origin. Others are relatively recent, and some of these, Rudolph, for instance, have come into the cultural holiday on loan from the commercial holiday. Then there is the Christian Christmas, the spiritual. In principle, we would be justified, he writes, in celebrating the incarnation every time we gather for worship. And in certain senses, senses, that's what we actually do during the Christmas season. We simply direct our focus more specifically to the wonder of the incarnation, setting aside time to ponder this event with deliberation. In principle, any season of the year could work for such a celebration of the incarnation, and late December is as good as any other. Done properly, he writes, a celebration of the incarnation can be a wonderful season of contemplation, instruction, and reflection and devotion. And this is the point, however, at which the cultural Christmas becomes a danger. An overemphasis upon the cultural Christmas will distract most people from the Christian Christmas, the reason for the season, as they like to say. They, they, will, this will be our, they will be thinking about reindeer when they ought to be most pondering God in the flesh. Their minds will be focused on Christmas cards and cookies when they should be focused on Christ's condescension. And that's where we want to take a moment before we turn the page on Christmas and a new year, is we want to think about once again the incarnation and the importance, the impact of the incarnation. We, we've done much of our music this morning and our scripture reading this morning contemplating that. We're going to give you a little biblical theology lesson today. 
And we're going to be looking at the Old Testament quite a bit. So we're going to be turning around in our, in our Bibles. Hope you, bring the, you brought them. If not, I encourage you to do so. Great to take notes. Uh, I'm going to highlight them. We're either there, you can, Of course, you can do that on your tablet or your phone as well. If you would like a Bible, uh, let me know. I'd love to give one to you. So on today, the day after Christmas, I think it's still important to remind ourselves of the importance of the incarnation. God himself takes on human flesh to become our substitute sacrifice. And in doing so, he bears the wrath of God that we just sung about by taking the penalty rightly due to you and me for our sin and rebellion. In addition, God exchanges Jesus' perfect obedience for our rebellion and then adopts us as children. What a wonderful gift. A great gift exchange. This enables us to be accepted by God and grants us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that scripture says is being kept in heaven for you and I today. Until that day that Jesus comes again. This truth was prophesied by Isaiah centuries before Christ came and gave us a wonderful picture of what to expect. You'll see here on the monitor Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise And though we may not see it fully today, we know that one day it is coming. So as we consider once more Christ becoming flesh, the gift of the Father to to this world to reconcile us back to himself, Lord, I pray that you give us your wisdom. We thank you for your word. I pray that you just uh, give us free from distraction, that we may concentrate and and, and comprehend uh, this wonderful truth, Father, and that we may respond to the Spirit's work in our hearts. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. In the last book, uh, or the last page, as I say, of the book of of Exodus, we read that as Moses and and Israelites finished building the tabernacle after receiving the law, after receiving all that, the tabernacle was finally built, and we read that the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. This is the cloud that had been leading them from Egypt. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud was the Spirit of God. What a wonderful uh, and joyful moment that must have been for the children of Israel that had been enslaved by the Egyptians for hundreds of years. Not only did Yahweh hear, see, remember, and love the Hebrew children by rescuing them from slavery, by delivering them from the clutches of Pharaoh's wrath, by providing food and water in the desert, by instituting a covenant, by committing to be their God and that they would be his children by keeping them safe from their enemies and providing land for their future generations to grow and prosper. God now comes and dwells among them, restoring in some sense the fellowship our first parents, Adam and Eve, had and lost in the garden. However, Moses did record one sentence that at first glance can be overlooked, but deserves our attention. Immediately after recording that the glory of the Lord Filled the tabernacle, Moses notes that he was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory filled, of the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. (coughs) Why is this? So we have read in Exodus, 
Moses many times was in the presence of God. When he, was, when he found the burning bush that Yahweh had spoke through. On the Mount of Sinai when he was given the law. Uh, in the previous tense of meetings where God would instruct him. Now each time we must point out that he actually did not see God. But the glory of God. God cannot be seen. He is, he is not flesh. It was just a portion of God's glory that he saw. Scripture tells us that no man has ever seen God and that no man could stand in the presence because of our sin. Scripture tells us that holy, holy is the Lord, a God of hosts. In Habakkuk, the prophet says, you, speaking of Yahweh, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In Isaiah, the prophet says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Just as the curse of sin and death brings about the ejection of Adam and Eve from the garden, Moses' sin keeps him from entering into the presence of God. However, what we read is as what seems to be a barrier, though is finally temporarily, or not finally, but temporarily lifted, as we read in the book of Leviticus 1.1, that the Lord then called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Again, a wonderful verse. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still kind of getting over this little cough, so please bear with me. It's a wonderful verse that demonstrates that even a man like Moses, or Moses, who was a murderer, could approach and speak with Yahweh when invited. Now, God had spoken to men in the past through dreams, visions, angels, and even audibly, but never was a man invited to approach God in such a way. As we learned in our study of Exodus, God made a way for man to worship, commune with God through his laws, and through rituals, and through sacrifices. Yet all of these things had shortcomings. It was only uh, temporary. It was not permanent. I believe you're there in Hebrews chapter 10. Here we read, or yeah, Hebrews chapter 10. Here we read that even though the tabernacle was a special dwelling for the glory of, of, the, of God, and that the sacrifice is accepted as atonement for the sins of people, the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 1 of chapter 10, that for since the law has been but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. <coughs> Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, I'm sorry, excuse me, <coughs> cleansed, would no longer have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For centuries, hundreds of years, <clears throat> Israel performed these sacrifices to atone for sin. Thousands, if not tens and hundreds of thousands of animals were sacrificed to atone for their sins, but could never find complete salvation. Only the restraining of the wrath of God until a final sacrifice could be made that would be accepted by God. 
Even then, scripture, scripture teaches us that it was not the blood, blood of bulls and goats that appeased God, but the heart. King David sings in his confession that's found in Psalms 51, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with the burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And at the time of this writing of this psalm, you may remember that David knew this intimately from experience. This truth comes from the painful reality of the death of his son due to David's sin with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read of the consequences of David's sin in the conversation between him and the prophet Nathan. I believe it's here on the monitor. When David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you will be utterly scorned by the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This seems harsh to you and I today. Why would God kill the son for the father's sin? Well, this was reflected first in the covenant that we read back in Exodus. Turn it once again with the ex- to Exodus chapter 34, if you would. <coughs> in Exodus chapter 34, we read first of Yahweh's character in verse 6. Where it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And this is the God that you and I are drawn to, we're attracted to. God is revealing a wonderful truth about his character, his merciful, gracious, forgiving spirit. Yet, as we continue, he also reveals, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, as you and I read and consider this, it does not seem fair that the children would pay for the consequences of the sins of their parents. Now take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah 31. They're in the middle of the Bible, a little bit further in the middle of the Bible, the Old Testament. Not only was the sacrificial system temporary, but it was also inadequate to deal with the issues of the heart. As you know, the Bible tells us that the heart is desperately wicked, and every inclination of man is to do evil. One of the motivations for a man to to quell the passion of his heart was to understand that his sin affected everyone around him, including his family. And many times we forget that, that the consequences of our sin has wide-ranging effects. This is harsh, but we know that it's also an ineffective way to fight sin. God in his plan and purpose salvation promises Jeremiah in chapter 31, look at verse 27, that behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I've watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the, fa- the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning that, <coughs> that they're no longer, or they're going to continue to pay for their parents' sin. But he says, but everyone, in verse 30, shall die for their own iniquity. Each man 
who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. He goes on to say in verse 31, that the day is coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Go on to verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after the days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant that God promises finds its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, 26, verse 26, as Jesus with his disciples on the night of his betrayal proclaims as he sees here on the monitor, take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see Jeremiah now coming to uh, completion. Now we must now, we usually consider this verse when we take communion on Easter and other days. But this is a wonderful implication for Christmas as well. What this verse is inform us is that we no longer need the body of bulls and goats to temporarily atone for our sins. God is making a better permanent way to deal with our sins. <coughs> As the writer of Hebrews claimed, if the blood of goats, the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have something much better, and it comes as we celebrate Christmas and we think of the incarnation. That's what it has to do with Christmas. It's the incarnation. Without the incarnation, there would be no crucifixion. There would be no resurrection. There would be no ascension. There would be no return. Yet God in his mercy is restoring all of creation, including sinful, rebellious man. The tabernacle, the rituals, the law, the sacrifice were part of God's progressive plan. But now it says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, he brings a better permanent sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our main passage today. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hopefully you're still there or you can get there very quickly. In Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 5. The writer writes, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You may want to underline that's our key phrase. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have not taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasures in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the laws. Then he added in verse 9, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So why do we celebrate the incarnation? What is the, the power, the, the mystery, the miracle of the incarnation? It was necessary for something, someone better than bulls and goats to pay for the sins of men and women. We needed a better substitute, a better sacrifice Hebrews 9.22 informs us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission of sin. 
In Genesis Nexus, we read that God accepts a substitute for our sin. But as we've spoken of earlier, that's, that, that sacrifice, that substitute was previously was insufficient. In Jesus, we find God's permanent solution. This is essentially the wonderful, uh, wondrous miracle of this Christmas story. We see this Christmas miracle in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the wonder of the incarnation. Just as God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden was with them. Just as the cloud came down into the tabernacle and God was with them. Now we have permanently Jesus coming in the flesh, born in that manger, is now with us. Not only will Jesus save us from our sin, but by coming in the flesh we once again see the glory of God that left the temple after the exile in Israel. No longer, if you go to Israel, would you see a tabernacle or a temple filled with the glory of God. It is left. But it's only through Christ now that you and I see the glory of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. In John chapter 1, we read that we have seen his glory. His glory as the only Son. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians, it says, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just as Moses witnessed the glory of God descending down on the tabernacle all those thousands of years ago, and then was invited to commune with God, we too see the glory of God descend in the ministry of Jesus And then we too are invited to come and commune with Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful story. One that I want us to consider and understand the importance of what Scripture tells us there. In Revelation, John writes, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without Christ. Jesus has come and invited us to join him. So there is much to celebrate during the Christmas season. Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh, was born to die for the sins of God's chosen people. Amen? Fulfilling what God required, perfection. Pastor Matt Semhurst, or Smethurst tweeted just this last week, The immortal became mortal. The invincible became vulnerable. The infinite became an infant for us. No other religion has a God like this. In all other religions, you work to appease whomever that God may be. But in this case, God comes down to us while we were broken while we were rebellious, while we were disobedient and dirty and unloving and loves us. That's what scripture tells us. Dustin Benz tweeted this question last year. He says, what does the incarnation teach us? I believe we have this on. Do we have this on the, the monitor? 
Yeah, look at these 10 or 7 things. Think about them. One is, God is not a distant ruler. God is ever-present with his people. God takes the initiative. It is he is when the fullness of time, he sent his son into the world. It's not that we had to work to please him first, but he loved us first. He has an eternal plan. We talked about that last week, the father's plan to redeem his children. God reveals himself in Christ. If we see Christ, we see the father. God provides a way for himself so that we may come to him, reconciling us through the blood of Christ. God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then God loves to rescue sinners. That's one of the things that you and I have to realize through the incarnation of Christ. It shows us these seven wonderful truths. Now these things, uh, there are many things that Satan has designed to distract us from the simple gospel of Christ. He has been successful in creating competing idols, gifts, money, seasonal spirits, and and sentimental uh, ideas to draw us away from God. And it doesn't mean that he has to drive us into demonology, or to demon worship, but all he has to do is keep us distracted, keep us busy, keep us thinking on something else other than the incarnation of Christ. He has crafted a false sense of what peace truly is by preaching a different gospel. There are many different gospels being preached today. Unfortunately, there are some churches, even here in our area, that aren't preaching the gospel at all today because they closed their churches because it's the day after Christmas. I imagine what next year will hold when Christmas falls on a Sunday. How many will attend church and hear the very gospel of Christ? The world looks to peace promised by the scripture as some type of cheesy sentimental emotions rather than God reconciling himself to the world or reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son. Let me promise you, or let me encourage you, do not fall into Satan's trap this year. Focus on that which is life-changing and life-giving. Again, who have you asked this year, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe he is? Have the opportunity to share the most wonderful gift there is with your family, with your friends, and those and your coworkers. So how do we capture then that true spirit of Christmas, the one in which we're considering the incarnation and the power and the wonderful gift of God dwelling with us and inviting us to worship? Turn once again to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to go down to verse 19. Simple, we just have to follow Scripture. Just as Moses was invited to enter the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, so too have we been invited into the presence of the Holy God. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, tells us, therefore, the fact that Christ has offered himself once for all. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says in verse 22, let us draw near. You can underline that or highlight that. This is what you and I dare to do. We are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You and I can now can stand uncondemned before him. The Bible tells us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are we still sinful? Do we make sinful choices? Yes, our heart still betrays us. But as one who's been invited in, we can come in and he accepts us as we hear from the prodigal son. We learn that Jesus runs to us as it is. The Father runs to us and embraces us when we confess our sins. He then in verse 23, let us hold fast. Underline that again, let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without what? Wavering. For he who promised is what? Faithful. See, it's not that you are faithful. It's that he is faithful. I like John MacArthur who says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You know, you always ask, well, can I lose my salvation? That's the question. John MacArthur says, well, yeah, if it was possible, you would. Why? Because you're a sinner. You know, even a forgiven sinner still sins. But we see that God has, has closed us and he says no one can snatch us out of his hand. And so we need to hold on to that confession, our hope, that confident expectation that God is faithful. And let me share with you, <clears throat> many times when we do sin, we fail to please God. We do not conform to the spirit or the law of Christ to love. We find ourselves running from God. But let me share with you, after your sin, that's when you need to run to God. Run to God. Hold on to that. He is faithful. He loves his children, willing to forgive, bringing us back into his bosom. So let's hold fast to that confession. And then verse 24, one more let us consider. Underline that, let us consider. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Again, the importance of community. See, Christ went back to heaven and says, I will return, but he gave us something wonderful. He gave us the Holy Spirit who brings us into covenant community together that we may love and encourage, he says, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. <coughs> but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That promise, that, that, that truth, that command is just is, and more important today than it was 2,000 years ago as we are now drawn even more closer to the day when Christ will return. We are to be together, not neglecting, but to build into each, one, each, to, into one, into each other, encouraging one another. That is why God has given you a spiritual gift. We've said it many times from this pulpit. It's not that you may be edified, but that you may edify and build and lift others up. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us consider. That's the power of the incarnation. That's the Christmas spirit that we ought to have this year. 
The best Christmas present ever was fo- is found in Colossians chapter 2. It says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. It's not when we were guilty, or I'm sorry, it's not when we were cleaned, but when we were guilty that God looked upon us and loved us. It's when I was dirty and sinful and rejecting him in hard rebellion against him that God looked down and says, I'm going to forgive his sin. See, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The power of Christmas is found in the incarnation in which we are made new, not just temporarily, not just insufficiently, but permanent and sufficiently. Jesus Christ, the perfect substitute, God made flesh and then given to us so that we may come to God. Let me close with this. Just four things. God wants you to understand that the celebration of the incarnation should not be tainted with selfish, greedy, covetous thoughts and actions. The sons of God did not come to earth so that you and I could obtain more items that will not last for eternity. So is it wrong then for us to buy gifts for our family, our friends? No, of course not. I think we can enjoy excuse me, the many aspects of Christmas, but we do it with the right heart, understanding what those gifts mean and where they come from. And two, God wants you to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh to redeem God's children from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. God wants you to desire the gift of salvation and our inheritance more than anything in the world. And then lastly, God wants you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him in an uncompromising commitment to be his disciple. That's the power, the meaning of the incarnation of Christmas. If their head bowed and every eye closed, the worship team can come up. Randy as well as we come to our pastor's prayer. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider the power of the incarnation and the meaning of Christmas and how it can be abused and misused, even in our own lives. And then would you pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's call for you to reclaim that, to recapture that, and to share that with those within your own heart, your family, those you love, and your family that God may be glorified and for our good. Randy, would you come and close us in our pastor's prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.